live from Studio G in Minnetonka, Minnesota. This is Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. And I am your host, Jesse, lover of all things green. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Jesse, and I'm excited to get started today. Today, we're talking about planning your garden for spring, and aren't we ready? Our guest today is Aaron. He is our perennials team lead here at Tonkadale. Hello, Aaron. Hey, Jesse. How are you doing today? Excellent. So you're here at Tonkadale, and reminder, guys, Tonkadale is a retail garden center located in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Aaron, how long have you worked at Tonkadale? I've been at Tonkadale now about two and a half years. Okay, and what kind of things do you do on a day-to-day basis in your position? Oh, all sorts of things. So um, a lot of it is uh, plant care and maintenance, watering, mm-hmm. um, ordering plants, looking at new plants that we could bring in, exciting new things for our customers, um, and then also a lot on the media side, uh, creating educational materials, garden plans, um, and then also helping out the greenhouse too with uh, annual planting, houseplant care, um, and really anything else that uh, I can help out with. Awesome. So. Your department is specifically focused on perennial plants, plants that come back year after year, correct? Correct. And yep. you do, uh, outside of Tonkadale, you have some special plant interests, I guess inside and outside of Tonkadale, correct? I do, yep. Uh, succulents uh, were kind of how I got into plants in the first place, uh, succulents and cacti. Uh, got into perennials from there, and then native plants and Uh, sort of our natural ecosystems is something that's really stuck with me as a passion. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's nice when those like two worlds collide where it's something you have interested and then you get to do it every day. Exactly. That's why I love working in a greenhouse. So talk to me about uh, the perennial department. What are the strategies behind the plants that we source, um, how we present the product to our customers? Yeah, so we really pride ourselves on having Um, a really fresh and uh, diverse selection of plants. We like to have a lot of the classics, of course. We have a lot of our hydrangea, uh, your garden phlox, your coneflowers, Mm -hmm. uh, all the staples. But then we also try to mix it up with uh, some newer varieties on the market, get some exciting new things that people are anticipating. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also some more unusual things, kind of the the Tonkadale flair, getting um, not only some more unique native plants, expanding that selection, mm-hmm. um, but then also just some less common ornamental offerings as well. Yeah, that's really cool. And I had a chance uh, to partner with you uh, in the last few weeks working on the plant signage. And uh, it was really interesting reading about all the different varieties that we'll carry here this year. Um, and just like their use and benefits, I think we put a lot of thought into the presentation of plants that we uh, sell here at Tonkadale and um, the importance of how they're used, whether it be for erosion control, benefits to pollinators, benefits to our local ecosystems. It's all it all kind of like melds together where the plant selection is very thoughtful Um, useful and gorgeous. Now, uh, speaking to that signage, we have some really great resources available to learn about perennial plants. Um, Probably the easiest resource to access is our perennial of the week page. And you can get it if you visit our learn page. Talk to me a little bit about what our goals are there with the perennial of the week features that we do throughout the season. 
Yeah, so the, the Perennial of the Week page is a great way to give just a, a quick uh, overview of one of our plant groupings here. Um, and not only talk a bit more about just their care and, and what they're like, but also get a little bit more into the botanical side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, give a little bit of background on their origin, how they're typically grown, uh, which can often give some insights on how to better care for it in your own landscape. Mm-hmm. And then also just uh, some popular varieties, some things to look into and um, what people have had success with in their gardens. Yeah, I think... I think it's great. It's kind of the, it's the go beyond the tag, go beyond the sign information. And that's all available on our website. If you visit our learn page and then perennial of the week, you can also just search, you know, a still be, for example, and that blog will pop up under news and information. And you can read a little bit more about a still be, for example. All right. Going back to varieties we carry. Uh, I know a lot of the plants that we source are grown by Uh, local vendors. Uh, We don't actually grow many of the perennials here on site, just a few select varieties uh, that we're able to get our hands on. And uh, that's, we've transitioned towards sourcing versus growing, you know, over the last, I don't know, uh, 10 years, it's, it's changed over time, but we have some excellent growers in our area. Uh, Erin, talk about the importance of utilizing local growers and maybe highlight some of the growers that we do use and what they specialize in. Yeah, absolutely. We're very fortunate to have a variety of local growers that really help us out. Um, not only is it nice to have growers close by so that if, if we really want a push of some new plant material before uh, like Mother's Day weekend, for example, or there's something we're really looking for that uh, maybe some larger suppliers can't order for us or grow for us, um, our local suppliers are really great at working with us, listening to our needs, um, and even helping us out where they can. Uh, even sometimes going as far as doing custom grows for right, us, right, right, um, which is a really awesome uh, kind of tool to have mm-hmm. in our belt here. Um, and then also, of course, just so sourcing plant material locally. Um, it's more environmentally friendly. We're investing in our our own local area here, and then especially with the native plants, mm-hmm. um, it's really great to have those local genetics and um, have native plants that are well adapted to our area. One hundred percent. Another thing I I love about using local growers is just the relationships that we build that we build with them. It's just it's mutually beneficial. Um, you know, we're able to throw them you know big chunks of business, whether it's a custom grow or a spec order, pre book, whatever it is. But I think the other thing that's really important is we get to know a little bit about how they grow their plants and the care and technique they uh, use when growing their plants so specifically like what chemical inputs might be used we can always ask them questions about that and you know we want our plants coming to us like as clean and chemical free as possible Um, and I think that's one huge benefit of having you know a local grower that's not growing fields and fields of plants across multiple states and multiple locations yeah absolutely that that one-on-one relationship that we can build there is is invaluable and having that open discussion um, and knowing that our suppliers are um, eager to work with us and, and listening to what we're looking for in our plant material mm-hmm. uh, is invaluable. And then also speaking to um, the quality of the plant material and, mm-hmm. and ensuring that our customers are getting high quality plant material. Um, a plant that's overwintered in Minnesota and has just woken up from dormancy. Yeah. And sort of the natural flow of things in Minnesota is going to be a lot 
hardier and ready to go in the garden versus something grown in California. No kidding. The soft Californians, right? Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> tell me about it. Well, let's get into the gardening. Uh, when getting started with a perennial garden, either, you know, adding to an existing garden or starting from scratch, what are the things that uh, we need to first consider to be successful? Yeah, I think it's important that anybody looking to get into perennial gardening or looking into establishing a new garden needs to um, really embody the fact that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and proper planning up front is going to prevent not only a lot of unnecessary work, but also a lot of unnecessary heartbreak. Right. It's so sad when something doesn't make it. Right. And and just understanding um, really the right plant in the right space, not trying to adapt your garden space to the plants you want, but right. planting the right plants for the space that you have is crucial in oh. a successful perennial garden. Okay, so what would you say is more crucial? The light that a plant needs or the soil that you plant it in? Ooh. Or are they both equally important? I would say that's a that's a tough one to answer. However, I think a plant in the right soil and the wrong light will last a lot longer. Okay. Than the right light in the wrong soil. Yeah, soil, especially with like compaction and overly wet soil, is no good for right. plants that don't tolerate those situations. Right. Right. So, uh, what are some things we can do to get our soil ready, or what types of soil are really kind of like the overall generic best for planting perennials in? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if if every perennial garden, gardener I think had their perfect soil, it'd be that nice. Uh, sandy loam soil that mm -hmm. will hold moisture but will still drain nice and evenly uh, it won't wash out on you it'll hold nutrients it'll release those nutrients to the plants readily mm -hmm. um, it'll be nice and workable um, but of course the reality as i'm sure a lot of our uh, local customers know uh, is we have a lot of hard clay here mm -hmm. and with uh, the periods of drought and the heat that we've had that can become pretty difficult to work too um, so a lot of people, I think, long for that nice, yeah. workable soil. Well, what I noticed in my own yard is, you know, certain s spaces uh, had been neglected for many years. Uh, neglected maybe is not not the right term, but, you know, hadn't been worked or tended to. Uh, you could hardly see my house when we moved in. There was so much overgrowth of invasive things and buckthorn, uh, et cetera. But the more that we've gotten in the garden and worked the soil, it's become so much richer and looser and really amenable to a wide variety of uh, plants. And so I can't encourage people enough to just, you know, get out there and work the soil uh, and continue to add compost and organic matter over time. Uh, and I, I guess one really easy rule of thumb is I always say one bag of compost per 10 square feet. Mm. Uh, it's not an exact or a perfect calculation, but just throwing those bags out every 10 square feet, knife it open, flip it over, work it in um, before you plant or while you're planting is super helpful. Right. And I, I think it's a really a, a balance that you strike in the yard. And I, I think we've seen a lot of interesting strides in like vegetable gardening, for right. example, uh -huh. um, where traditionally it's it's tilled up every year with a rototiller. It's right. uh, redone and you get that super loose, almost agricultural soil. Uh, when in reality, you can build that nice, nice soil in your yard without doing that rototiller and completely right. doing it up. Just by over time working it, uh -huh. adding that compost yearly, and then also just having those plants in there can really transform the soil. Yeah, I mean, the plants are in their work in the soil. You have all of those different relationships with the fungi and the worms and 
whatever else lives under there. But it's a really fascinating world below us. All right, let's talk about light. What kind of considerations uh, should we be thinking about when planning a garden when we're thinking about light? Let's, let's define a few terms for folks. Full sun, what is that? So full sun, we tend to treat as six or more hours of mm-hmm. full, full direct sunlight per day. And of course, there's nuance with all of this, but anything less than that, a full sun plant is not going to be happy. Right. They're going to perform the best, be the most vigorous, have the most blooms when they're getting the light that they need. Right. And they'll also be less prone to disease. They'll be less prone to flopping in the garden. True. Stretching, right. falling over. And, uh, you know, that's also kind of a function of drying out, you know, a lot of times full sun plants in my mind are also a bit drought tolerant. And I think they do need, you know, they need that full bright sun to reach to and to produce a lot of flowers, but also so that they're not sitting in a swampy, damp area all the time. Right. And I mean, of course, you can still have your your full sun wet soils, but yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. Like your rain garden plants, etc. Yeah. OK, so talk about what is part sun. Uh, part sun, then again, I, I would say that's probably the grayest area. Yes. Um, we we kind of treat it as between full sun, six or more, and shade, which mm-hmm. is generally three or less. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tend to say full sun is about four to six hours direct light. But okay. I think there's also some room for interpretation with dappled sun uh, or just kind of intermittent sun. There right. Too. I I like to think about part sun as uh, cooler sunshine. So your eastern Uh, morning sun is going to be a cooler blasts of light versus your hot afternoon sun. Right. Uh, So an eastern facing area uh, to me is it's almost sometimes the perfect location because you have kind of that cooler morning sun. If you can get that sunshine until, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, maybe you're not going to be growing tomatoes there, but then that kind of that shade in the afternoon kind of helps, uh, from all that extra drying, but that's just me. So that's part sun. Then what do we go to next on the spectrum? So then we do just part sun and then right to shade. Some people do a a part sun, part shade, but Uh we like to keep it simple. Okay. um, And shade generally three or less hours of direct sun a day. Um, I think deep shade where there's no sun is kind of its own subsect there. Right. Um, Because even shade plants need some sun. Of course. Um, But yeah, generally three or more or three or less hours of direct sun a day. And Mm -hmm. then also that part sun, like you were saying, a lot of those shade plants will be their happiest in part sun. Right. Growing shade just fine. Exactly. So it's it's more indirect light in a way. It's light at a steeper angle, dappled light, light coming down through the canopy of trees. Those would be some examples. North sides of the home, right. perhaps. Um, in my house, you know, the back of my house faces west, and we usually say, well, west sun is the best sun. You know what I mean? You get that long afternoon sun or southwest sun. Um, But in my case, I have a large hill that goes up and then a canopy of oak trees. So that's actually the shadiest part of my yard, which is interesting. So I have to use plants that really tolerate uh, low light, indirect light in that dappled kind of midday sun, which is a really interesting uh, situation. And I'm I'm more of a, a shade garden guy myself anyway, too. So for me, the ideal sun is that that part sun shade and mm-hmm. um, I I like the shade garden and dealing with that challenge of less sun too I think it's more of a puzzle and you have to get a little bit more creative whereas 
to me, I think the full sun gardeners have it kind of easy. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you you got... pretty much get your pick of the litter if you have that nice full sun. That's true. But, the, okay, there's also some other benefits about uh, from gardening in part sun locations. It's not as freaking hot right. to and work in the in the full sun versus the part sun. Yep, and you don't have to worry as much about water, too. True. Yeah. And sunburn. And sunburn, yes. <laughs> to you and your plants. You and your plants, great. So uh, light is so important. Soil, we talked about, very important. Uh, let's talk about what trends are you seeing in the gardening scene as a whole? Yeah, uh, so of course, one we've already kind of touched on, native plants. Uh-huh. Uh, planting for pollinators, planting for birds, for wildlife. That's a really encouraging trend we're seeing. Right. Um, having that consciousness of not only what your garden can do for you, but what it does for everything around you uh-huh. um, and how you can benefit your local environment while beautifying your own your own lawn. Right. Um, and then also with that, um, I've seen more of a recent shift to, okay, we've focused on pollinators now. What about every other insect? Uh-huh. Um, what about the things that aren't just you know, here for the pollen and nectar, but are still vital to that ecosystem um, or vital, you know, food for for wildlife. Um, So that's been a really exciting trend, one that I think is going to continue to persist here. Um, And then also with that, a lot of low input gardening I've seen. Okay. A lot more um, water-wise gardening, just plants that need less. Right. Um, Water, also plants that need less. Fertilizer, um, especially native plants kind of fall into that Venn diagram too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also kind of moving away from the wood mulch, that sea of mulch that you spread every two, three years. Right. Um, moving away from that, not only because it's cheaper and less work, but also... It is, yeah. It is. Not buying mulch is cheaper than buying mulch. Yep, and your, your back <laughs> will probably thank you too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, moving more towards that living mulch and uh, just having a green mulch, that kind of base layer in your garden, which I think the vegetable gardening... Uh, community is kind of spearheaded a bit too and of course okay so it's it's a little bit of thicker denser planting on the one hand right um it's mix and match so Mm -hmm. edibles perennials shrubs popping in some annuals all mixed together right that is my front garden to a t it's everything and (laughs) and i i wouldn't have it any other way um and then probably another trend we're seeing is an effort with uh, breeders or plant producers to create um, kind of like smaller, more manageable shrub sizes. Mm-hmm. Would you say maybe that three to five foot by three to five foot range versus, you know, eight to 10 feet on, you know, things that just get crazy big. Right. And with that, too, I think a, a lot of shrubs have gotten sort of a bad name from older cultivars right. too that are disease uh, prone. Like right. I think. Nine bark is kind of the big one there okay. where a lot of people are afraid to to get back into that. Because of the of, powdery mildew? Yep. Ew. Uh, whereas on newer varieties, they're a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also a lot more compact, a lot denser. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then with that, also a lot more disease resistant too. Right. So we're talking about low inputs as far as like water, fertilizer, mulch. But we're also talking about low inputs from the humans. Like right. having, having to mulch, uh, pruning. Yeah. That kind of thing. Or then also having to consider um, insecticide or uh, fungicides as well. Right, looking right. to reduce and, and ideally eliminate that from the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certain insects are going to happen. And a lot of times they kind of happen on a schedule. So for me, one example is my uh, salvia gets spider mites every year. Yep. 
and I just know it's going to happen. And, you know, about the time it happens is when it's kind of done blooming. Mm -hmm. So I just cut it back. Right. And then, you know, I'll get some later summer blooms, a little flush of blooms afterwards. But I just try to not let it bother me. I just know it's going to happen. Um, and, you know, I act I act accordingly. I just cut it back and I don't have to look at it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Just part <laughs> of that, you know, more hands off gardening, but also more accepting yeah. think, approach to gardening and realizing that it's a natural landscape. And it's, you know, I think sometimes a lot of people get to the point where they're almost just outdoor decorating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think gardening is so much more than that. Yeah. I mean, it totally is. And just the benefits of being out there in the garden, looking, observing, working the soil. It, it's just, it's so good for the, the psyche and the body, the physical activity. And for me, uh, when I'm working in my garden, it's really a connection to my community because most of my gardening happens in the front yard because right. we have so much shade in the backyard and a, a steep slope as well. All right. Let's talk about, let me see here. We talked about trends. I want to talk about some of the resources we have available at Tonkadale to help uh, get your garden started. And one of those resources are these beautiful garden plans uh, that we actually, uh, one of our employees designed and painted. She painted them with watercolor last year and we've formatted them uh, digitally so that they're available on our website but also we have printouts do people say printouts anymore sure (laughs) we also have printouts available in our perennial section Um, and there are four garden plans Erin walk us through the pollinator garden plan yeah so uh, the goal of the pollinator garden plan here um, again these the plans I think the kind of approach that we took with this is you know, if you want to take this plant and verbatim plant it in your yard, that's fantastic. But um, really what it is more is a source of inspiration and more of a, a template in designing your own space. Right. Um, and with the pollinator garden here, first and foremost, my priority was to utilize our Minnesota native plants. Okay. Um, and the reason being is those plants have co-evolved with our local pollinators. Uh, they offer the best benefits through their pollen and nectar supplies. Right. Um, and also in the long term, with that lower maintenance, they are best adapted to our conditions. They don't need uh, extra fertilizer generally or mulching. And um, so what I did here is I tried to select native plants that were somewhat similar in um, their needs, mm-hmm. um, similar soil conditions, similar light conditions. Right. Um, and then also a big part of this, as with any garden, is the bloom progression. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure I we tried to have about three species at least blooming at a time here. That's impressive. This is a 20 foot by 15 foot space. Yeah, it was, it's a bit of a puzzle to put it together, but it's, it's a yeah. fun process. I, I'm just thinking of, you know, uh, you know, in the movie, you see uh, Goodwill hunting on the chalkboard, this giant math equation, trying to figure it all out. Yeah. That's kind of what it felt like. Okay. You should have seen my scratch notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we got it on paper. I love this. Uh, continue. What other considerations do you have for this pollinator garden? Yeah, so that bloom progression, again, not only makes it a beautiful garden to look at, but it also is providing that nectar and that pollen all season long. Right. Um, there's a couple um, non-plant accents to this plant that other plants may not have that are more pollinator specific. Right. Um, for example, we have the flat stones, mm-hmm. um, which are great for pollinators, especially in the morning. Um, they need to have that sun and that heat to kind of get their wings pumping and, and get moving for the day. And then also uh, like the bird bath or a, a shallow saucer of water um, provides that crucial moisture for pollinators as well. That isn't present in maybe a typical garden. Right. 
Um, and then also just keeping in mind kind of the nuances of Minnesota native plants. You know, there are some, uh, for example, early progression species that after a year or two, they're not meant to persist. They're meant to okay. sort of phase out okay. uh, for the longer term perennials. So trying to avoid those, uh-huh. uh, pick those longer life, longer lived perennials. Um, and then also um, avoid anything that was overly vigorous yeah. and to keep it yeah. so that you don't have to do too much maintenance and splitting um, aside from a typical perennial garden maintenance. Oh, that's excellent. And I think um, when people are considering native plants, that is I don't know, maybe native plants get a bad rap because people think they're aggressive, unruly, maybe unsightly, but that's not necessarily the case. Right. Uh, and what's really interesting on this garden plan, when I look at it, um, you know, at first glance, I see letter A is the blue false indigo, Baptisia australis, whatever. Anyway, here we have three plants planted, and I love planting my garden in groupings of three, mm-hmm. but I know that it's a big, big, it can be a big, big plant when it's full grown. So if you have a smaller area, you could easily do one right. false indigo like a shrub. instead of three. Yeah, treat it as a shrub. Um, and so on and so, f- so forth as we get down here uh, with the asters, they get large. Um, so you could, you know, do one or three. But there are some benefits to planting in mass. Now, what are those benefits? Uh, uh, first and foremost, honestly, almost any plant looks better if you plant it in mess. Um, and I'm sure people disagree with me on that. But I think <laughs> almost anything, if you plant in a large group, it's gorgeous. Right. Um, and then also pollinator benefits specifically. It's easier for pollinators to find plants that are grouped in larger right. uh, plantings. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of those pollinators, they only travel maybe 5, 10 feet a day. My goodness. Uh, so you have a lot more forage right there readily available for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also as they grow, they can sort of grow together. Um, and you don't have to worry so much about things sort of encroaching on one another um, as you just form a nice attractive stand there. Yes, I love it. So the pollinator garden plan is available here at Tonkydale. Let's move on. Let's talk about the shade garden. A lot of us Minnetonka gardeners or gardeners that live in established neighborhoods with, you know, big trees. We have a lot of oak trees out here. We have a lot of shade. So walk us through uh, plant and plant selection for the shade garden. It looks like the same square footage, 20 feet by 15 feet. What do we got going on in here? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, this is one of my favorites here. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I try to be creative with this. I think one of the first things people notice is there aren't many hosta on here. No hosta. Um, we've got one in the corner. Okay. Okay. Um, But, um, Oh, good old Olive Bailey. My reasoning for that is I I think people have a pretty good hold on on Hosta and don't Mm -hmm. need to see them too much in the landscape. So I tried to move outside of that. Um, And again, like any plan, we move with the heights from the tallest in the back forward. Okay. Um, And then with this, I also um, tried to think more about what I was mentioning with that kind of green mulching idea. Okay. Um, So you'll notice towards the front, we have wild ginger, um, a couple sedges, which I think sedge research and that sort of um, excitement is building, which is a really cool thing to see. And sedges have edges. They're not a grass. That's right. They are grass like. (laughs) Okay. Um, And then, you know, of course, still keeping in mind bloom progression. I think one of the tough parts about shade gardens is 
they're really great in the spring and they're really great in the fall, but the summer can sometimes be a bit of a lull. Right. Um, so also prioritizing foliage interest in ways that plants can provide interest in the garden just outside of flowers. Right, because uh, I do have some of these plants in my yard, the uh, Jack Frost Brunera. That's something that's going to bloom early spring, but the leaves are gorgeous. Yes. Silky, silvery, heart-shaped leaves going to form like big uh, flowy mounds in a way, uh, or big, almost like a hosta shape right. in the landscape, but it's got that silver foliage that is yeah. so pretty. And that'll stick around all season long. Right. And then, uh, another of my favorites is the Hakenakloa, the forest grass, mm-hmm. the bright lime green foliage is kind of billowy and archy. That one is yeah. great for taking up space. Eventually it's a little slow to start and you got to keep it well watered. Right. And th- that one also is almost like a, a spotlight in a way in the mm-hmm. garden, because I, I know a lot of people, there's a lot of dark leaved plants right. that are made for the shade but mm-hmm. if you put a dark plant in a dark place it's easy to get lost so that can also help draw attention correct um to like the bug bane that we have next to it and then right it kind of draws the eye through the garden that bug bane too. is another great one i love that one yeah and again doesn't do too much till the end but provides that foliage interest yeah so we can think about uh colors leaf color so leaf color leaf shape leaf texture so we have the purple leaves of the bug bane the silver on the siberian bug glass or bernera lime green with the forest grass maybe some bluish foliage on your hostas um all of that so that lime green too yep and the coral bells those come in a lot of different colors from purples to reds um lime greens to me don't seem to be as hardy uh, my experience but we have lots of color variation available just in the leaves of these shade plants and then the flowers are of course an added bonus sometimes short-lived but definitely interesting and then think about leaf texture is it soft is it fuzzy like something like a stackies or is it kind of smooth or even succulent mm-hmm. um, or thick like some of the hosta varieties that's always really interesting to me in a shade garden yeah and you'll also notice in this plan i so of course one of the the most common techniques in designing a garden plan is repetitions right repeating elements throughout mm-hmm. Um, and with leaf texture and that silver color, for example, we have Bernera on one part. Okay. And then you'll see you don't have any more Bernera, but you have uh, Pulmonaria, Longwort yep. there, which also is going to have those silver accents on it. Also have a nice sort of blue-purple spring bloom. Um, so you get that repetition throughout the garden with that texture um, offset then um, by sort of that more smooth texture of the coral bells next to it, um, or even the Tiarella, which is a bit of a, a larger leaf. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's definitely, repetition of elements is definitely a way to kind of like simplify your garden plan and give your give your eye a place to rest as it moves through the garden. Um, when I'm thinking about this shade garden, I'm thinking about my own home on the north side of my house. Uh, the front of the garden is very much... Uh, exposed to the morning sun and the back of the garden is very shaded by the trees, but I want kind of like one continuous flow. So repeating Mm -hmm. leaf color throughout, even though some of the plants need more sun and some need less helps that continuity. But also I see in here, some of these bloomers, like for example, I have the hot lips turtle head closer to the front because I know that I can tolerate a part sun location as well. Whereas like Uh, we'll just go back to like the hosta or fern that's going to tolerate that deep shade situation right and prioritizing those plants that are fairly prolific bloomers for a shadier site are 
are good to prioritize in the brighter spots too, right right because you'll get better blooms out of it mm-hmm. um, or another thing to consider is fall color you'll get True. much better fall color in those yeah. brighter areas too yeah exactly so, yeah. Well, this is an awesome garden plan i love it um, definitely some native varieties featured as well let's talk about let's see here i i think the shade and the pollinator garden are the most interesting too but the full sun perennial garden is a larger space it's a 30 foot by 12 foot it's kind of a bean or peanut shaped kidney shaped garden here if you want to do install a berm or something yeah this one is great it has all kinds of it's more cultivar driven it has some shrubs it has some edibles featured as well talk me through the thought process in designing this full sun perennial garden yeah so um designing this garden one thing you'll notice right off the bat is um, there are a lot of edible components so one thing we wanted to do is also uh, incorporate one of the growing trends we're also seeing which is an emphasis on uh, local food growing your own food uh, and also having your landscape kind of work for you in a way aside from aesthetics so um, we incorporate some annual components through our veggies we have tomato Um, We have also some perennial edible components like blueberries, which are also a great sort of shrubby Mm -hmm. uh, anchor in the garden. Um, And then also we utilized a lot of great durable shrubs to sort of hold down that design and give it some structure um, to give a background for some of the smaller blooming plants uh, in front of it. Right. And you're going to have a lot of winter interest with those shrubs from the little lime hydrangeas, those panicles that dry down um, in the in the winter you'll have the red stems of the dogwood with the variegated foliage during the summer mm-hmm. um, which is really beautiful you have the evergreen arborvitae um, we have grasses that are going to stand up in the winter to keep things interesting all kinds of beautiful things Ooh, i'm loving this the ornamental onion or allium yes i that's like my new hot plant i planted a swath of them uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm waiting for it to fill in, but I just have this vision of all these alliums on drumsticks, you know, these balls of purpley blue flowers with just bees all over them. Mm-hmm. It's like they're almost like vibrating and you can hear the bees just really enjoying their time on the alliums. So I, I think that's really fascinating and um, fun to plant in mass. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, that one's awesome, too, because it can look very formal if you want it to. Right. But it's still a super pollinator plant. Right. Yeah. You And just kind of deciding in what order or what shape you plant, the plants can dictate the garden design. So alliums, you could plant in a straight line or you could plant them in a grid, and that's going to look very formal and contemporary. Um, or, like you said, you could plant them in groupings of three or pockets. And that's going to look maybe more cottagey. Right. And a long swath is going to look very naturalized and, um, you know, loose and airy and, I don't know, more prairie-like? Yeah, yeah, a little bit more of a natural-style garden. Yeah. And then, of course, as, as you touched on, you know, we have snow on the ground for at least six months out of the year. I think that's a bit of an optimistic uh, uh-huh. estimation. October, November, December. Oh, gosh, you're right. Okay. Uh, and you want to avoid what uh, many refer to as that six and sticks. You want to garden for the winter, too. Because mm-hmm. We need something to look at when the, the sun goes down at 4.30 in the afternoon. You're right. But what, um, what if there are four feet of snow covering 
your garden and everything is flattened. Then you look at pictures of the garden from last week. <laughs> okay, get yeah. on your phone and swipe back. Okay. Oh, goodness. Okay, we have one last garden plan to talk about. It's the part sun garden, the best of both worlds. That's right. This one is a 16 by 16 foot space. And right in the middle, we have the blue angel hosta. That one's a big guy. Yeah, that one is almost five feet across. That's amazing. And big leaves. Yeah. One thing I love about hostas, especially the bluey foliage, is looking at the water droplets mm -hmm. when they gather on the hosta leaves. It's just so pretty. Yeah. All right. What else do we have in this garden surrounding that big, bad hosta? Uh, we also have some really nice shrubs to anchor to the, the design. Uh, one of my personal favorites, the Summer Sweet Clethra. Mm, yes. Um, while not a Minnesota native, that one is still a North American native. Okay. And it's uh, cool because it's, it's kind of a blooming powerhouse of a shrub, but unlike a lot of the common blooming shrubs, that one's actually a mid to late season bloomer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also has just the most wonderful vanilla fragrance on it when it does bloom. Amazing. Um, we also have a nine bark, which again, I think nine barks get a bad rap, but they're honestly one of the most versatile shrubs, both in uh, moisture and light. Mm -hmm. um, so having that nice hit of that darker sort of purple, purple foliage um, really helps to offset the design a bit. Uh, with all the green that you can get in a shadier site. Right. Um, we also have the Lady in Red Fern that has that beautiful red petiole on it for just a little hit of color. Yes. Um, and then, of course, one that I, I think more gardeners should be using in their garden, which is that um, Aurelia, the okay. Golden Spike Nard. Yes. That one is awesome because of that bright chartreuse foliage, which brightens up the space, but then also it's it basically looks like a shrub and grows like a shrub, getting four to five feet tall and wide. But wow. every winter dies back to the ground, too. Hmm. That's so interesting. Kind of a cool plant. I'm kind of digging this epimedium. That's the one that has kind of like a yes. delicate dancing foliage, that, almost like a maidenhair fern. That is actually my favorite. Oh, plant. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, the well, flowers are almost orchid-like on it. That's oh, right. yeah. And the foliage, it just is. It dances on wiry stems. <laughs> Um, just so pretty. I, I'm going to have to add that one this year. So this is awesome. Um, I love all the garden designs we have put together. But one of the things that's really great about them, if you flip it over to the back, we have lists of substitutions. Um, so when you come to the garden center, uh, you might not find every single plant on the list. Or maybe you don't like every single plant on the list. So the back side offers some substitutions should everything not be available at once or you want some additional options or maybe you need to expand the garden to be larger. There's some substitutions listed here um, so that you can make it work. And I think... That was a brilliant idea because sometimes you want to get it done in a weekend. But you know what? Realistically, this is going to be a shopping list you're going to seek over time because only so many things fit in the car and you can only dig so many holes on a weekend. That's Especially right. Especially if you have, you know, young children and activities and things like that to attend to. Yeah, absolutely. The substitutions are really where you get to make this plan your own and, and mix and match however you want. Um, we put the heights next to the elements so you can still sort of keep that that appearance of going taller to shorter and have it where you can see everything. But aside from that, it's really up to you. Yeah, that's so it's so great. So customizable. Thank you for having these available for customers. They were a huge hit last year, and I think they're going to catch fire and be an even 
huger hit, if that's a word, this year. All right. In closing, Erin, what are three to five new varieties, new to new to new to the market varieties you're excited for this year? Oh, um, let's see. Well, uh, some of the new nine barks are okay. pretty uh, exciting. They are coming out with a lot of, as we discussed, denser, smaller mm-hmm. stature ones. Um, like uh, I think Little Angel was a new one yeah. uh, with that kind of bright chartreuse foliage. Oh, Again, yeah. Can do full sun, part sun, uh, dry, wet. Uh, so that's a really great one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the standing ovation service berry. I'm not sure if it's brand brand new but new to us for sure okay um and that's a really good one for people looking uh for an edible landscape in maybe a smaller city lot okay um is that the tree form or the shrub form so it's a tree form okay but it's a columnar form oh interesting only gets about four to five feet wall but it's tall or four to five feet wide excuse me but about 10 to 15 feet oh it's a tall one i have a, a stand of service berries in my yard and let me tell you the berries are small and they are delicious you know but you got to get out there before the birds get them yeah and for those of you worried about the fact that it might be a messy tree you're you're lucky if you beat the birds you're lucky if they hit the ground anyway delicious just eaten right off the tree i think you know pancakes if you kind of squished them up they'd be kind of like a nice syrup alternative Mm -hmm. Anyway, I love service berries. I love saying the botanical name amelanker. Okay, so we, we talked about a few plants. Let's let's talk about some more. Uh, we're also going to bring in the Rose Queen Epimedium this year. Okay. Which is uh, a really beautiful pink flower on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, one of my favorites. We always have the rubrum, the red flower, and then uh-huh. also the sulfurium with the yellow. So having okay. a, a pink would be nice and kind of play off of uh, some of the other pink spring bloomers like pulmonaria. Uh-huh. Um, so that one, I mean, of course, I'm really excited about any epimedium. Save me one. <laughs> I will do. Yeah, okay. I don't think we're getting too many. Okay, so save me one. Come in quick for that one. Right. Um, what else? And then um, I think we're on the native side of things. I'm really excited uh, that we're going to be carrying some larger sizes of some really good natives. Okay, okay. Um, like a really good smaller shrub that's a native is New Jersey tea. Yeah. Um, and that one's really cool. It's more of a kind of a sprawling habit, but only about three foot tall and wide. Okay. Um, and white flowers on it, really great for mass planting. Right. Uh, woodland gardens, cottage gardens, really versatile shrubs. So I'm excited about that too. Awesome. I'm excited too. I am itching to get out in the garden. I didn't do a lot uh, last year. I had some other projects going on, but this year is my year to garden. Yeah, I, I am so excited to get out there. It's going to be great. Well, Aaron, thank you for spending some time today on the podcast. You yeah, are a wealth of me. information and... Uh, just so you guys know, Aaron has, um, Aaron has produced, is that the right word? Aaron has created so many resources available for perennial garden success. You can find them in the store. We have a care card, little tree house. You can grab care cards from, but we also have all the information on our website. So make sure to visit that learn page. Uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on your greenhouse home, the podcast. That's it for this week's episode of Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. I am your host, Jesse. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at Tonkadale.